Hey, hello there. It's good to be here. Actually, it's good to be anywhere. This is H. Lee, a.k.a. Harris Insler. You're listening to TGMBH. These ghosts must be heard. A podcast that shares stories and interviews with people who have suffered a loss due to OUD and to others who might be impacted by OUD, opioid use disease. Today, I'm happy to speak with Lisa Manning. Just tell us a little bit about yourself, what you're doing now, your surrounding, where do you live, and all that stuff. Thank you, Harris, for having me. I appreciate being on the show. I currently live in Tampa, Florida, where we just moved here back in September of last year. I lived in Atlanta, Georgia for, gosh, almost 30 years, since 1992. I went there after college, and I met my husband that fall. I moved in March of 92 and met him that fall. At the time, I was working on getting my license as an athletic trainer. And I ended up getting that. And so I worked in physical therapy, athletic training. We got married in 96 and had our first child in 97. That was a girl. Life was grand. You know, we started making a family and had our second child in 99. That was a boy. That was Dustin. And then our third child was in 2002. So we were done. (laughs) We were done with children. You know, just did the family stuff, went on vacations every year to the beach. My girl got big into gymnastics, so we were always at the gym with gymnastics. And then my boys got into football and baseball, and constantly we were either at the gym or at the fields, living a typical everyday life that, you know, you you live when you have children. Um, I ended up homeschooling my children. I started homeschooling them when my oldest was four, decided to do it just because I wanted to have a say in what they learned and how they learned it. Really, there was not really any other like religious really reasons or anything. It was just, and my good friend started to homeschool her child and I was like, well, I'll just do mine too. So at the time, my middle child was two and my youngest was not even born yet. <laughs> when I started homeschooling my daughter, they did great. I thought they did great. It was me kind of being the one that taught them how to read and write. I was solely responsible for that. And they're very good writers. They both like to read. Dustin, who is no longer with us, he really enjoyed reading. So that was, you know, that was kind of a feather in my cap, I guess you could say. My goal was to homeschool all of them until they got to high school. And my daughter, I I went that route. She was homeschooled till high school. And I still had the boys at home. Dustin went to high school his freshman year and sophomore year. And I guess it was his sophomore year that we found out that he was dabbling into substances. And that's kind of where that all took off. How would you describe him in one sentence? Uh, Full of life. What's your favorite trait about Dustin? Physical would be a smile. Uh, Humor would be the internal trait. (laughs) Can you give us a story? Gosh, he would walk into a room and his face would just light up. See the guy at the party who entertained? Oh, yeah. People were attracted to him. Either, I don't know if it was a smile or just his... um, whole personality, the whole, the whole package. <laughs> his, his aura. Yeah. People are like that. They're magnetic. They come in, they glow. Some people come in surreptitiously. And then when they start talking, you, you know you're in for something, some kind right. of entertainment. And that was one thing, too, that he would, um, we always had teachers and coaches that would say, he's such a joy to talk to because as a teenager, you know, most kids 
don't talk to adults and they don't look at them in the eye or anything like that. And Dustin was so the opposite. They would always comment about how he's such a joy to talk to. He looks at you in the eye. He comments, yes, sir. No, sir. Yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. Very polite. You would never know that he had a deep demon inside. So yeah, he was, and I still get told that all the time. They just miss talking to him because he was just so, a, such a delight to talk to. It's it's too bad. <laughs> I mean, when you say that, I mean, I compare him to my son in, in the same way, but he was like an agitator just to get a laugh. Oh yeah, that's exactly what Dustin was Very like. sarcastic. And if yeah. you try to beat him at it, you never won. Nope. <laughs> never won. Would be into it all the time. We would butt heads. We were so much alike. He was one of those. He was, I used to call him um, Eddie Haskell, you know, <laughs> because he was such an Eddie Haskell. He would please everybody else around you, but man, you knew it was a farce because he just was trying to get something. I'm glad you brought that up because our favorite pet name for him was the weasel. <laughs> and whenever, you know, when I talk about him or just talk to him, you weasel, look what you, you know, something like that. So it was like, <laughs> I don't know, do you, did you have a lot of video and photos? Oh, photos, yes. Videos, a lot when they were little. Um, I don't, I didn't have a lot of video, unfortunately. You know, when we went from the, the recorder, right. the VCR recorder to your phones, I did, I just, you just don't take a lot of video. I never did. Right. I took a few and they were, Dustin had a point to, he was a very heavy sleeper whenever he did sleep. And if you were, if he was napping and you went to wake him up, he would be so disoriented and it was really funny to watch. So it was actually just about three days before he passed, he was taking a nap on the couch and I was making dinner. And my husband said, um, I'm gonna go wake Dustin up because it's, it's getting time to eat. And I'm like, fine. So he goes, you know what though? I'm gonna take my phone and take a record, a record him. <laughs> I was like, oh, good idea. And I'm so glad he did because that's the last video that I have of him. But he um, was waking Dustin up and he opened his eyes and he looks right at you. And Greg's like, come on, it's, it's time to eat, Dustin, time to eat. And he's like, okay. And then he starts mumbling about, did you get the bones? We got to get the bones. And he's just mumbling all this bone stuff. And Greg's going, the bones? And Dustin's looking at him in his eye going, yeah, the bones, like totally awake. You're thinking he's awake and he's not. It was just, <laughs> it was there was one time he woke him up from a nap and he went to go to the bathroom in the closet. <laughs> the bathroom. It, it was just, he was our comic relief. <laughs> Same here. Same here. We took videos the year he was born. I got one of those heavy camcorders that you put on your shoulder back then. My daughter complains, well, why didn't you get it for me? I couldn't afford it then. <laughs> after the, after he was born about it, maybe a few months, I gotta get this. This way I can get her and him and them playing and do all the crazy videos that I had. And it was, that's what helped get me through the first few years. That's all I did. I cried, I laughed, but mostly I laughed. It was probably a couple days it was, I think it was the day, the day of his service, which was about three or four days after he passed. We got all the Christmas videos out and started watching them. You know, they were all in those cassettes. So we had to hook up our, our cassette recorder to the TV, to the computer. I mean, there's a whole gamut of things we had to do to watch these stupid videos, but we had invited some of my friends over. We were watching these Christmas videos and remind you that I was homeschooling my kids and I was very, strict on their diet 
they weren't allowed to watch any of the shows that were, you know, quote unquote, anything bad. I wasn't a helicopter mom, but I was, I was just strict, wanting to protect my kids, like put them in a bubble. So for their stockings <laughs> and my girlfriend who was watching these videos, she was like mortified. They're pulling out pencils and erasers and they got lifesavers, but <laughs> that was the kind of stuff that I put in their stockings. I didn't want them to have candy, you know? <laughs> It's like, we weren't going to have these mindless, useless games. And my girlfriend's like, I can't believe your poor kids got pencils and erasers in their stocking. You might as well have given them coal. <laughs> exactly. I thought I was doing a good thing. And then looking back, I'm like, God, that was so bad. But you know what? You really look, you look back and everybody's great looking back. We've had our times when I should have done this. I should have done that. I, I call that the runaround loop. There's no one to blame. There's an illness. It's that simple. So his interests were mostly sports? Oh yeah, big, big athlete. Did he have any other hobbies? He loved, football was his first love, but he just wasn't big enough. So he kind of went into baseball. That's where he turned his interest. And um, he really was wanting to play, of course, like every kid, you know, MLB. But I think his really big goal was just to make it to college, to play college ball. That was something he used to always talk about when things started turning around. And he he wasn't much, he was very smart, but he just didn't apply himself. So Sounds he, familiar. Yeah. So. He just didn't do that great in school. I and mean, he did, he did okay. He was average, but he, he just, he could have been so much better because he was a smart kid. I mean, I homeschooled him. Of course he was smart. <laughs> <laughs> he got his GED. He was so excited and wanted to, my husband is into construction. At the time, back then he was, um, he had his own business and he was doing installations for Sears. He was a contractor, but he built our house and he built half the furniture on our house. I mean, he's just very handyman. And Dustin always liked that. Dustin always wanted to, you know, build with dad and kind of make things. And so that's kind of where his trade was headed. He wanted to actually go into elect be electrician and him and Greg were going to have their own little side gig and buy houses and, you know, refurbish them and sell them. And that was kind of the goal, the more realistic goal than playing in the MLB. <laughs> Actually, my son, he didn't know what he wanted to do for a while. I thought he would have wanted to be a teacher because he always loved kids. I mean, with my nieces and my grandnieces, he would just like, he was in heaven with them. And they liked him because he was, he was funny and he played with them all the time. What would make Dustin laugh? Oh, gosh. <laughs> Irritating his siblings. <laughs> Sounds about right. Poke the bear constantly. And, and he loved doing that to me. He loved to get me angry, but then he would turn around and make me laugh. And I could never get mad at him because he would just try to make me laugh. Exactly. And he, he was good at it. I, I hear so many stories of people and like, yeah, that was my son too. Do you have a favorite story or memory about Dustin? Yes. <laughs> this is probably, well, I have so many, but this is probably the one that we always bring up whenever we're at the beach. When Dustin played baseball, he was on the travel ball team. And we had a great team. It was, he was with them for, I don't know, four or five years, maybe longer. And we would always go to Panama City and play in the big tournament down there every summer. We're down there. I, don't, I think Dustin was seventh grade, maybe. We're all, all the families are on the beach and the, all the boys are gathering together in the water playing. And all, this, all of a sudden, Dustin's teammates come running towards me and Greg. And they're like, 
Mr. and Mrs. Manning, oh my gosh, Dustin's in trouble. And we're like, what are you talking about? We're thinking he's like in the ocean, drowning or something. He's like, there's this big guy that wants to beat him up. And I just looked at Greg and I was like, oh my gosh. So Greg's like, oh really? Well, what's going on? He goes, well, he goes, you know, you know how Dustin is. He doesn't shut his mouth. And he kept agitating this big, and this guy, I saw him. He was probably a high school age. And here's little scrawny seventh grade Dustin. And Dustin's just, you know, poking the bear at this guy, just really making him angry. And so this guy was literally pacing the water, waiting for Dustin to come out of the water. And he wouldn't come out because this guy's waiting for him. I was just, I couldn't help but laugh. It's like, at that point, I'm like, you know what? This kid is always in trouble doing this stuff. And I'm tired of being the helicopter that comes in and saves him. And I'm like, I'm just going to watch, sit back and watch how this plays out. And I'm going to enjoy the show. <laughs> exactly what we did you got back at him <laughs> i did payback is you know what yep. and dustin did he finally got out of the water and i think he went up to the kid and he was like and with a sweet little smile you know and his debonair characteristic and he's like you know listen dude i'm really sorry i didn't i don't even know what he said to him but i think he was trying to smooth things over and they ended up being friends by the end of the trip but it was just it was so funny because his mouth got him in trouble again <laughs> I believe you said he interacted with some kind of substance when he was about 12 years old? He told us that he had his first beer at the age of nine. Oh, okay. Yep. And he started smoking pot at the age of 12. Okay. And that was while he was still at home? I don't, I don't think he was at home. I don't know. It could have been. No, I mean, was he still being homeschooled? Oh, yes. I'm sorry. Yes, he was still homeschooled. He was homeschooled until he was 14 when he went to high school. So when he's 12, he's what, sixth grade? So he had, um, he smoked his first joint at the age of 12. And then that led to prescription drugs that he would get from his friends, you know, their stuff in their cabinets. And then he just spiraled. So he did that in high school. Now, did, you didn't know, did you? We didn't know until his sophomore year. 2015. How did the drugs affect him? You know, for me, I had no idea. I had no clue. I've never been around that stuff. We didn't have it in my family growing up, but my husband, he was more susceptible or he was more skeptical to it because his dad was an alcoholic. His sister and his brother were both addicts. He had a feeling and that's how we found out because he had a feeling. We found out of the summer between his sophomore and junior year. We found out because Dustin was in the car. We were going to a family event and he was in the car and he just kept like dozing off. And he kept saying how he could, he wasn't, he didn't sleep well the night before. Well, that was a big red flag for Greg. Greg knew something was up only because he said a few weeks prior to that, he felt like something wasn't right with him. Dustin, Dustin, time to get up. Very bone. Get his bone? Mm -hmm. Who's got to get his bone? Break down bones. Huh? Get his bones. What bones? Who? Bones. Bones? Yeah, I'm saying if we could, if we compare his bones, if we got bones, his bones when he was on his bones. It was a total surprise to me. I had no clue. I liked to when I was making speeches after Pat Dustin passed, I would always say my head was literally in the sand. I had no idea. You know, I homeschooled my kid. He was raised in the church. I didn't think this would ever affect our family at all. So 
I can't say that I saw a difference in them because I didn't even know what I was watching. I mean, this is a common story that I've been getting. For us, it was 2006. Not even in my greatest fears or anything would I think, while well, he showed some symptoms of something, to me, it was like, oh, so he's doing some pills or something. And back then, I mean, we didn't understand what that meant. We thought something was up. At one time, he was brought into the, I think we took him to the emergency room for something. And because he was 18, they would not tell us anything, which I think is, I'm not gonna, yeah, I'll say it politely, it's not the right course. And I understand you can take advantage of people that you don't like. And there were these court cases where, you know, someone wants to get the inheritance of someone. That's why they do that. But they can modify this somehow. But... Harris, let me go back a little bit and give sure. a little insight about Dustin's past. I have three children and he was the middle and he was so tenacious from day one. He was very hard to put down as a baby to take a nap. He wouldn't take a nap. He would scream to go to bed and he finally, he would scream himself to sleep and then he would sleep all night because he was exhausted from screaming himself to sleep. He started walking at seven months. My daughter didn't walk till after one year. So he was a very early walker. He just, he was so headstrong and that's where I felt like he was so much like me because I was very much the headstrong of between me and my sister. You argue with him, he would, oh my gosh, the arguments were horrible. You know, my other two, you could argue and you would finally say, that's it, no more. And they would stop, not Dustin. He would keep on and keep on and keep on. He wanted to win every single argument. It didn't matter what it was on. He would argue that the sky was yellow. You know, it didn't matter that I was saying it was blue. It, that's just the kind of kid he was. And I kept telling my husband over and over again when he was little, this will serve him well when he's older. <laughs> but right now, I'm about ready to shoot him. <laughs> you know, it, he was just a very headstrong kid. And he used to always say, looking back now, I don't know if it was really what he was feeling or if he's just wanting attention because he was an attention getter. But he would say stuff like, you know, I'm going to kill myself. Put that out there almost all the time. And he would even say it to my best friend. And she came to me and said, you know, Dustin said he's really depressed. And he wanted to kill himself. And I was like, you know, he's, I felt like I just shoved that under the rug because I feel like he always said that. And I didn't know if it was a way of him reaching out or if it was a way of him trying to get attention. And I think people need to hear that because it's a scary thing. Now I look back and I'm thinking if I had maybe addressed that a little bit more seriously, could things have been, they would have, could have, should have. Maybe, but you know what? I'm not absolving us parents, but I think we didn't have the knowledge about a lot of things. Some parents were more well informed. Look, my wife is a biology teacher, a professor. We didn't put it together because we had, I grew up in the old wild days of the Bronx, New York in the 60s and 70s, where, you know, stay noted drugs started and all that stuff. The problem was not in our neighborhood, it was in disadvantaged neighborhoods our picture of what a heroin addict was is rarely white. It was mostly black, brown, immigrant. That was what we grew up with. And of course, that wasn't the case. There were Caucasian people who were getting sick and dying back in the 70s and 80s. Why is it at the fore of the country now? Because, well, it's spread all over the country. It's so, it's so devastating and they don't even realize it. it's like the soul of the country is being killed. Like you said, we were had our heads in the sand, but there's so much more knowledge. It's Thank goodness it's more out there. It's Shatterproof and GRASP and all these organizations, drugfree.org. I mean, they're doing the work, but 
a lot of people, it's hard for them to handle and it's not affecting them yet. So they figure, oh, I don't have to worry. When did things get worse? Right when that summer, when my husband realized something was going on and we got home from that family event, I still didn't know, still had no idea. I was upstairs, Dustin was in the basement and Greg went down in the basement to talk to him. I thought he was going down just to hang out and be with him. But then I started hearing yelling and screaming and I was like, what's going on? And I walked down there and Dustin's sobbing. Greg looks like he's about ready to kill him. <laughs> I just walked into this and I was like, what? And Greg just said, our son's doing drugs. And I was like, what are you talking about? You know, totally just, there was no talking about it. It was just our son's doing drugs. And I was like, what? So yeah, that's how it got. And from then we took him to a rehab center that night. So one thing, did, did he understand? Did Dustin understand that he needed help or not? You know, when Greg couldn't talk to him anymore, I, I, I started talking to him because I wanted to find out from him what exactly was going on and where he was with all this. Cause I, I, again, I had no clue, you know, in the midst, in between the sobs, Dustin was saying that he was sorry. He didn't, you know, he just, he didn't know where else, what else to do. He was, he's so depressed, you know, all those symptoms. I said, do you, do you think you have a problem? And he's like, I don't know. He literally said, I don't know. I think he knew something was going on, but I don't think he really knew the just of how intense it was at that point. So yeah, he went to rehab for 10 days. It was one of those awful ones, which none of them are really good. <laughs> it's not just the addicts, it's the people that are trying to commit suicide, all that in that short-term rehab place. And when he came home, he was, get, he was getting ready to start his junior year of high school. Cause he, this was, this was the end of July. And so school was starting like the following week and he got home just in time to go to school. You know, we just kind of kept really close tabs on him. I remember setting my alarm every two hours throughout the night to make sure that he's not, that he's still in bed and he didn't leave. And this was probably maybe two or three weeks later. There was one night I set my alarm every two hours. I got up at one to check on him and he was still there. At least I thought he was. And then I woke up to go to the bathroom. It was about 2.30. So it was before my second alarm and he was, he wasn't in his room. The front door was unlocked. I'm like, so I got Greg up and I'm like, Dustin's gone. And this, this was a, an occurrence just about every night. This is what we were going through every night. He would sneak out and go meet, get drugs, whatever. So that, that went on for quite some time. What and was he doing? What, what was he using? What was his? Oh, everything. I, I asked him at one point and you name it, he would use it. His choice of drug was meth. Well, I take that back. He used everything but heroin. He didn't use that till the very end. He tried the heroin at the very end. And the only reason why he wouldn't use the heroin is because he did. He was afraid of needles. He didn't want to inject himself. <laughs> Go figure. <laughs> That's some drug addict, boy. No needles. Oh. <laughs> so I understand in your story, when you found him in the morning, did you speak to him the night before? The night before was, it was a Thursday night. <clears throat> he went to a rehab meeting and Greg went to pick him up. I forgot where I was, but I, I got home and he, he was home and that was Memorial weekend, Memorial day weekend. So he was going camping with his girlfriend. Greg said to me, cause we, I, I worked at the rehab center that he was at at that time. And so I was able to get all these different drug testing kits and not just the kind you buy at the store, but the kind that drug, you know, tests for everything. So I had brought a few home and we told him 
since he was living in our house that we were giving him random drug tests. He had a job and like I said, he had just passed his GED um, that weekend before. So he was on the right path and we had tested him a couple times prior and he was negative, didn't show any signs of anything in his personality. So we felt like he was doing really, really well. Greg said, we need to test him. Greg took him into the bathroom, had the door wide open so Greg could watch. Dustin kept saying, it's going to be negative. It's going to be that whole, you know, cocky that he is. It's going to be negative. And Greg didn't believe him. Greg looked at me and he goes, I think it's coming back positive. And I was, and I wanted to give my son who I knew was doing really well, the benefit of the doubt, because I'm the mother. I am that enabler. You know, I don't want to believe that he's back on drugs. But you also wanted to have some hope. Absolutely. You weren't, he wasn't getting by. You just wanted hope. I remember specifically, Greg brings me the kit dip the thing and I'm sitting there and Dustin is literally hovering over my shoulder. Like I could feel his head on my shoulder. He's gone. He just kept saying under his breath, it's going to be negative. It's going to be negative. And Greg's sitting across the table and he's just looking with at me with these eyes, like, like he hopes, but he just really feels like it's not. And it comes back negative. Every, every panel was negative. And Dustin goes, he slaps the table and he goes, I knew it. And he gets in his dad's face and he points his finger and he goes, I told you, I told you it was going to be negative. And I started crying because I was happy. You know, I was like this, it was, I was so hopeful and happy. And I said, Dustin, I'm proud of you. That's exactly what we wanted to see was a negative test. I said, it's not that we didn't believe you. We just needed to have proof. I said, I hope you understand with everything that's been happening, we felt the need to do this because we were leaving for this weekend. We were going up to my parents in North Carolina. He was going camping. We just wanted to be sure. And he's like, I understand, mom. I understand. I know. I get it. He was so happy. He was so happy with himself. You could just tell in, in, in the way he was acting in his face. So he runs downstairs in the basement where my youngest was playing Xbox and starts playing with him. And they, they hadn't played Xbox together because of all of this stuff that's been happening for a long time. So he spent about an hour and a half downstairs with his younger brother. Dustin went into his room and I was getting ready to go to bed. So I walked into his room and started talking to him. And we just had, <laughs> right now to me, it seems like it was the best conversation. It was not the best conversation at that point because he was explaining to me all the drugs he ever did. He was explaining to me how he just started shooting heroin before he went to rehab the last time. And he was showing me in his foot where he would shoot it, in his toe, in his ankle. And I'm like, I'm just, I'm just listening, but I'm trying not to show emotion because it's making me sick to my stomach to sure. hear my son sure. talk like this. Sure. But he's sharing this information with me like I'm a friend, not like I'm his mother. So that meant a lot to me because we were not talking for the longest time because of his addiction. Um, I just let him talk. I just let him talk. And I just kept telling him I'm proud of him. I'm proud of him. And I hugged him and I told him I'd see him the next day. Now the next day was his graduating class. It was their graduation. Apparently I went to bed and then Greg got to spend some time with him one-on-one -on -one after I went to bed. They spent maybe 30, 45 minutes together. And then he went to bed and he ended up talking to his sister for an hour on the phone. She's, she was at UGA at the time. When they hung up, he, I guess, called his girlfriend, Cameron, and talked to her till 1.30 in the morning. And that's the last anybody had any contact of him. Sounds like he was saying goodbye, maybe. You know, People say that to me, but 
I don't think so. I think it was just, I don't think he knew he was going to die that night. I don't think he had any intentions. I think it was just, and I know this is going to sound really weird and people are going to be like, what is she talking about? But for me and how I am now, I think it was literally the universe was bringing us all together because the universe knew that Dustin was going to do this. God, the universe, your higher power, whatever you want to call it. That was God's way, the universe's way of bringing us all together separately, having that one-on-one time. Because that next day when we were going through all the things, we saw my daughter's cap and gown from high school was in that closet and it had been taken out. And I think he tried it on that night, knowing that's what he was supposed to be wearing the following day. And I think he just got into his head like he always did. And he just, he had a moment and he needed to get that moment out of his head. So he took the little bit of meth that he had that was laced and that was it. You know, what's funny. I I think I agree with you on what you just said. Zach and his psychiatrist agreed. This is after rehab and doing different programs that he should go to Boston because one of his friends lived up there. The last time I spoke to him, he had been clean for almost three months. He had a job. I spoke to him and how you doing? Okay, blah, blah, blah. We had seen him the weekend before. He looked okay. He's excited for the job. And I think it was this kind of thing where, okay, I'm ready. I need one more to say goodbye to heroin. One more goodbye. I researched this. There was bad batch of heroin. I don't know what was wrong with it. Well, he got his answer. I would agree with your story. And I think that sounds pretty much like behavior of kids who have this disease. A year later, I reached out to a medium. She was able to get in touch with Dustin and he said if he knew the vice was tainted, he would have never taken it. I guess the spirits with mediums, they call your alcohol and drugs, they call it the vice. And she didn't even know. And she said, I take it. He died from an alcohol or drugs. And I said, yes, it was drugs. So that for me, whether it's legit or not, that gives me a little bit of peace knowing that he didn't want to die. You know, we, we went to a medium too. My wife wanted to go, I said, okay. To me, eh, I wasn't impressed. We were so powerless and so ignorant back then. But for the most part, I'm not there anymore. So one of the big issues surrounding OUD is the stigma, and we are well aware of it in the community. Did you tell people what happened right after he died? It was such a blur after that whole thing. I remember. Um, I became an advocate and started speaking to schools and youth groups. But that wasn't until three or four months later. Right after it happened, I think word got out. I honestly don't, I know, I didn't say anything, but word just got out. The, uh, there was a boy down the street that died the exact same way, um, although his was heroin, but they both had gotten the same drug from the same dealer. Our story made, made it huge because the same thing happened to a boy down the street the very same night. His dad found him early in the morning, just like Greg found Dustin. I was staying in the cul-de-sac with the two officers when the call came through that the Abrahams down the street, they needed to have someone there because there was another homicide or what they thought was a homicide. I, when they said, when they said the address, I just kind of, it, it popped in my head that that was Joe. And I said, can you tell me if, if Dave Abraham owns the house? And the officer I was talking to looked it up and he said, yes. And I was like, oh my God, that's Joe. 
immediately I'm thinking, well, Joe and Dustin were together somehow because they were only one year apart and they hung out when they were little. They didn't hang out at this point. So we became big news like all over the world. And there was a, a friend of mine who her husband was in Turkey at the time and he even heard about it in Turkey. It became a big thing. We were interviewed on CNN, blah, blah, blah. So I think I didn't have to tell anybody because <laughs> it all came out because of that. When I heard Lisa detail the day she found Dustin had passed and mentioned Kathy Abraham from episode five, it dawned on me how stigma played a role in the double passing of Joe Abraham and Dustin Manning. The parents knew of each other, but it appears neither of them knew OUD was a common problem. And the fact that they both died from different drugs that were laced with fentanyl shows how intractable and dangerous the disease they suffered from is. My takeaway is that all of us should learn about our own community in regards to OUD and SUD. We should check with law enforcement, the schools, and the PTAs, parent-teacher associations, and sound a clarion call to take action together. But first, we must all get rid of this damn stigma. I didn't start really divulging any information until it's, it was probably six weeks, maybe two months later. I was told by the investigator not to say anything because they were trying to figure out the case. So I was trying to be hush hush. I mean, I was in like a different world for like six or seven years because back then it was like only, you know, only my immediate family, my closest friends. And when then somebody asked, you know, I would say he just, he was sick. And little did I know, he was really sick with OUD, but I didn't know that at the time because it wasn't called that. With this stigma, were you satisfied with the resources that was available? No. <laughs> I knew the answer before I asked, but I just want verification. Do you think if your son, my son, anybody's son or daughter had those resources available, do you think there might have been a different outcome? I mean, I would like to say yes. I honestly don't know, Harris. I mean, I thought we tried to deal with it the best we knew how with what we had. We dove into our savings, our retirement. We spent thousands of dollars trying to figure out what we could do to get Dustin better. And you know, it, it, it literally comes down to, I fully believe it has to come within the addict himself. Of he or she has to want to get better. You can spend millions of dollars and the best rehab centers, the best meditation, it doesn't matter. They've got to want it. I know people now that are still addicts that have been addicts for 30 years or so that they, they just don't want it. <laughs> but how the hell are they still alive is what I don't get. It. I know, I, exactly. It, it blows my mind. I, you know, you, that's a, that's a, I think that's just a mystery, a, a question for God when you get up there. That add to your many questions on your list, you know? I don't know. I, I'll tell you one thing that I did learn. When he was finally let us know what was going on, he told us that he found a website or somebody on the internet who was a, basically a functioning heroin addict. This guy would give instructions, you know, just telling people, look, I need it, it helps me. And there are people all over the world who use opioids and they live a long life. So I think part of the answer when they're coming up with this now is that everybody's brain is not the same. Kids who start heroin at a younger age are more likely to mess up their brain versus let's say this when addict starts when he's when he's 30 
his brain is formed and maybe he doesn't have the proclivity to become addicted and knows when, okay, that's enough. I feel better. I do, I do it every three days, whatever. It's been four years since he's passed and I've learned in the six years that we've been dealing with the drug addiction. I'm an athletic trainer, so I know a lot about the body, but I don't know a lot about the mind as far as addiction or anything like that goes. I did learn that, you know, male's brain doesn't fully form and mature until they're 25. Well, Dustin was, what, 12 when he started? So, you know, it's quite a bit of, it's almost, it's over half, over full part, part of his life, right, you know, right. his brain was going to mature. And I've heard this from so many people that, you know, that the boys, that they have sons that are addicts. I don't even know what the age is for the girls. I'm sure it's less than 25 because girls mature quicker than boys, but I don't know what the age is. But, you know, I also believe that there, I mean, I did so much research on being an athletic trainer in the health field, and now I'm a bodybuilder, so I do a lot of research of, like, interaction with drugs and stuff and what it can do to your body. Not illegal drugs, but even medication drugs, supplements, any of that stuff. There's such a thing where your brain can be, it can be a trigger that amoxicillin can trigger something. You just don't know. And that's the scary thing is you don't know what, how your body is going to respond to anything. You know, I learned that in bodybuilding that you don't have a cookie cutter supplement list. You don't have a cookie cutter diet because everybody's body and brain is different. So what I might eat is going to totally affect me differently than what you are going to eat. And I think that's where, you know, your modern medicine's trying to, well, take this drug to help to curve that heroin craving well not necessarily because i know people who have taken that drug and it doesn't do anything for them <laughs> there's so much out there that needs to still be developed and understood i don't know if we'll ever get there to be honest i, I hope so but i i don't know i think we will if look who could fix this you need huge influx of money to do research the problem is in this society people hear the word heroin and say nope nope we can't do anything about it we can't change well, why don't you make heroin a Schedule II drug, which would allow universities, scientists to get federal grants to study this. One big thing, like a chain like that, with the, and money pouring in, which would happen, I believe, because there are so, so many people who are impacted by this. Why not try these things? I would advocate trying almost anything supervised i mean oregon is doing this thing where they decriminalize it so you don't just take an addict and throw him in jail he'll come out he'll want to still keep doing it mat you've heard of that it's like using suboxone it's medically assisted treatment oh yeah yeah i would advocate trying anything rather than oh we'll let this person drop off the end of the earth he'll buy some bad heroin and he'll die that the answer not in a society that cares about its civilians, its population. You know, there's got to be a lot of a lot of changes. And I think that's I think it needs to start with society being open and realizing that you know it's it's the kid next door, it's the kid sitting next to you in the church pew, it's the kid at the private school, it's the teacher at the private school, it's the dad who's taking your kid to football practice. I mean. It's all of those people. You know, I, I heard an interesting fact. You know, you've heard of the, the phrase, there's 10 degrees separation between two people. Yep. Well, they actually did a study on that and come to find out there's like 0.15 degrees of separation when it comes to drugs. 
you talk to somebody and they're like, oh yeah, well, my uncle or me or my sister, it's always someone that they know immediately. It's crazy. It's That's how potent it is. And that's how everybody is around it. One of the people I interviewed, I think she said that opioids are the cancer of substance abuse. That made a lot of sense. You know, people talk about gateway drugs, but do you know what the number one gateway drug is? It's alcohol. Oh, yeah. Think about it. It's yeah. accepted. You don't know if this person is has a proclivity. So we have to rethink, but it's all about money and industry. You know, it's, it's, it's just too damn complex. It all comes down to money on everything. Yeah, especially the people that are dealing. And you never, you know what? You're never getting rid of these people. You're mm -hmm. never going to stop the inflow. It's got to come with working with individuals, with doctors, psychologists, psychiatrists. I mean, my son was, I found out he was anxious. I think to me, that's where the answers lie. And we're not gonna get out of this until we do something like that. Is there any kind of overall ending statement that you would like to make? I just, I think it's important for people to realize, like I said earlier, that it's the person next door. It's your son or daughter's friend. It's your son or daughter. Don't be that sandhill crane that puts his head in the sand, you know, so to speak. Be aware, be open to your kids, with your kids. And I don't, you know, I say this in, when I used to talk at schools and to parents and to kids, and I would say, who's paying your, who's paying the cell phone bill of your child? It's you, the parent, the kid's not paying it. It's you. So you own that cell phone. I understand about respecting your kids' privacy, but you can respect their privacy when they're in their bedroom and they're shutting the door and they have their stereo on or Spotify, whatever you call it nowadays. But when that cell phone, that that was the biggest thing that Dustin used and he would go on the dark web through his cell phone to get dealers. I'm a firm believer in that cell phone. If you're paying the bill, you have every right to every single thing that kid is doing day and night. You go on that phone and you find out exactly what they're searching. You go into their, their web and you search. You be nosy, it's okay. You're the parent. You're saving their lives possibly. I think that's the biggest thing. Parents nowadays want to be friends with their kids instead of being parents. And they're, what, they want to give them their privacy. And I totally understand that. I respect that. I give my kids their privacy. But I tell you what, that cell phone, it's a deadly weapon. It's such an easy thing to get a hold of. Everything is through that cell phone. So I just be smart. Be smart and be nosy. You're allowed. Thanks for listening. We appreciate it very much. To stay tuned with These Ghosts Must Be Heard, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at These Ghosts Pod. And take a look at our website, VoicesFromTheOpioidCrisis.com, to hear more stories and share your own if you'd like. Our podcast is now streaming on Spotify, Amazon, Apple Music, and coming to more soon. So there's plenty of ways to hear these ghosts. And as Zach used to say, Peace out.